All right, so Brandon Cassidy, I uh, wanted to just hear, how did you guys get here to Northwest Arkansas and get plugged into community? Um, I came here off of stubbornness and... Great start. <laughs> well, it's who I am. I just had grown up in Iowa and I just kind of took the plunge one day and moved. And yeah, the Lord kind of just put me in a situation where I didn't know anybody except for him and Mumsy. And so yeah, that's how I ended up here. Nice. Yeah, so my story's a little different. So I, we moved around with our family, uh, with my dad's job, and then finally moved back to Bentonville when I was five. And so we've been here ever since. Uh, we started going to fellowship right when we moved back here. Um, and then I went to Bentonville High School and with the University of Arkansas, I just did the normal Bentonville life. Yeah. Um, after college, I uh, took a job in Houston. Um, and so I was in Houston for a year and then decided to move to Dallas. And both those two uh, cities were very different in and of itself. So I knew you in high school and in college, and then you went away. And I remember when you came back, there was this deep desire and hunger for community from you. And so tell me a little bit about that from both of y'all. Just how has God met the desires of your heart, met some of the needs as you've kind of plugged into this new young adult community group? My outlook on Houston isn't super great because I didn't really get to dive into the community. Like I didn't get to see what the city was like and the people in that city were like, I really just focused on my job. Um, and then when I went to Dallas, like it was the total opposite. Like obviously I cared about my job and my career, but I really wanted to focus and get, dive into community and, and understand like who these people are in my life. So when I moved back to Bentonville, I knew that I didn't want people to have the same outlook on Bentonville as I do on Houston. Um, I think Bentonville just growing up here, I think it's an awesome town, but you can definitely get sucked up in the, this is a family oriented, there's no one my age, no one that is like me here. And so, uh, yeah, this community group helps me, helps other people in this group just hopefully feel like that, feel like they belong here, that they don't just have to have, you know, two kids and a wife or a yeah. husband, right? You yeah. can like actually like enjoy what this town offers, what this people, what this church has to offer. Yeah, my story is a little bit different because I, because I moved so much, I moved 12 times in four years. So I was constantly just moving and making friends and then having to leave them all the time. And so I got really accustomed to that lifestyle. And then finally the Lord just kind of like broke my heart and was, you know, breaking my heart for what breaks is and people need people. And I ended up, when I ended up here and I got involved in a community group, it was exactly what I needed because I needed that consistent community and people that you can just call whenever you need and not feel like you're a burden. And so yeah, that was a desire of my heart, just to have people. So what does that community look like for y'all? It's not just a one night a week thing, I would assume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely not, which is, <laughs> which is great, which is awesome. Yeah. And that's just what I needed, which is great. Like I wanted this, but so many other guys and girls want the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is like, I wanted to always hang out. Like I never wanted to be alone. Mm -hmm. Well, everyone else in the group thinks the same way. And we're all in like a similar stage. It's funny, like all of us moved here in June. And so it's really just, we are all wanting the same thing like Brandon said. And Brandon is so great about just sending out a random text and be like, hey, come if you want or don't. Yeah. Like, but we honestly, it's all about the community and what all of us want. And we're, we all just want each other. Yeah. And so being able to spend time with each other and not just be like, yeah, I see you on Sunday. And then nothing else. It's about, again, creating those deeper relationships and encouraging them. So there's this aspect of like, you find friendships, you find community, but with that, how would you say you are also growing 
and learning to be a part of the greater community and the church through being part of this group. This group does that much more. We say like, hey, what are you dealing with on a weekly basis and like, how can I help you? Mm. Um, and so just setting up those like accountability partners in this group is what makes it go above and beyond. Mm -hmm. For me, it's just been the Lord has just put a desire of wanting to help other people get involved because of what it did for me. and moving here and not knowing anybody, and then all of a sudden feeling I could walk in any room in the church and know at least one person. It's just such a blessing and it makes you, it makes church feel like home. And that's what I want to help other people feel like is just making church home for others and just having that family within the church. Well, good morning. Welcome. We're so glad that you have chosen to worship with us today. My name is Stephanie Getz, and I serve on the community team here at Fellowship. And it is our prayer that every one of you would find a place to belong and grow and build community within the church, just like Cassidy and Brandon shared in the video. We always have people in the back um, at the community booth before and after the service that can talk with you and let you know about opportunities that are coming and ways that you can connect into a small group. Uh, men, you can also go to our website um, to find out about men's opportunities. One of the best ways, let me just tell you real quick, is getting connected with our Discover class. You may have heard about that. Well, it's starting right now, like right now. It's not too late for you to go to Discover class. It's an eight-week-long class where we do small group and large group experience where you learn more about our church and you can get placed into a small group. So if you're interested in going into Discover, you can just get up from your seat right now. It's okay, nobody's gonna judge you. And go to the building next to this one, and they're on the second floor. They sh there should be some people over there greeting, and they can direct you where to go. Ladies, I'll tell you about what we're about to do, because this is kind of what I do here. So. Women's small groups are kicking off. We have many that are starting this week. And so you can go to this QR code up here and see a list of the opportunities that are available to you. If you don't do QR codes, you can go out to the community booth in the back and we also have it um, in a hard copy that you can look at the list of ways that you can connect with other women here. I just wanted to tell you just a little bit about, I got sick before Christmas, like probably a lot of you, there was a lot of sickness going around, but because of that, I missed three uh, Sundays of being here and being able to worship with this body of believers, and during that time, I just was reminded of what a gift it is to be able to come together and worship our Lord together. So would you all join me as we prepare our heart to do just that? Father God, we love you. We are so thankful for your love for us. Lord, that you made a way for us to have a relationship with you, to come before a holy God through your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for placing us in a body of believers with men and women who also seek after you, Lord, that we can encourage one another in our sorrows and in our joys. Lord, I just ask right now that as we come into this place to worship you, that you would help us to set aside the things that are on our minds and our hearts. Some of those things can be really hard. But Lord, would you help us in this moment to focus our attention on you 
Would you show us who you are and how you go about working out your sovereign plan in our lives? And Lord, teach us how to be more like Jesus. We ask in his name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us and let's sing together of his faithfulness. Fun creations, it's pride and adoration, treasures woven by his love. His careful hands they hold us safe within his promise of calling and of destiny. We're heaven's
out one more time together and we'll see and I will sing of all you've done and I'll remember how far you carried me from beginning to the end you are faithful faithful to the end amen you may be seated Let's continue to sing of his greatness together.
of Esther. It's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now, this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once, which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days. And it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish.
And that's where we find ourselves in the story this morning. Don't the folks at Bible Project do a great job? We purposely put the website on there for you to maybe peruse yourself or even with kids. It's such a great tool. Hey, years ago, I had a boss and a mentor who would ask people a peculiar question, particularly when making small talk. He would ask people, hey, tell me about the most courageous thing you've ever done. It tended to shut down small talk. In fact, he asked me that question once. He asked the person who trimmed his trees that question once. Years later, he found himself invited to the White House for a gathering. Serendipitously, he was seated next to the president. You guessed it. He asked the president of the United States the same question. What is the most courageous thing you've ever done? The reason that's such a hard question is it kind of causes you to pause. It drops you back on your heels. The most? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. I have a hunch there's one person who, if they were asked this question, what's the most courageous thing you've ever done, they'd say, that's easy. And it would be Esther. And she would point to the moment in Esther chapter 4, the defining moment of her life. If you were not here last week, uh, it would be a great message to go back and listen to on podcast or watch on the video. Doug Raines did a powerful job taking us through a courageous faith that was starting to be birthed in Esther during chapter four. In fact, if if you've noticed, we're reading Esther. The story itself reads kind of quickly, and we're actually going through it even more quickly. And so the temptation is to think that somehow Esther takes place maybe a oh, I don't know, over a few months in this young woman's life. No, no, no. The events in Esther take place over 10 years. In fact, Esther has been queen for five years before Haman launches his evil genocidal plan to exterminate all the Jews. Five years. Come on now, five years. You can develop some habits in five years, can't you? And this woman has been living in the palace as a Persian queen. She's been hiding her true identity as a Jew and living like a Persian. I imagine that she's starting to feel quite Persian at this point. She has this new identity that's becoming same old, same old. She's got a new normal that feels like a a good rhythm. It would be so easy for Esther to just drift into the background of a very Persian story. But I think she finds herself like Frodo Baggins found himself in Lord of the Rings, where the crisis came to him, and he somehow found himself stepping into the story. Esther finds herself the same way. Doug talked about a story arc last week. And he mentioned that all good stories that we love tend to follow the same pattern. And it's true whether you've been forced to love Frozen or Beauty and the Beast, or whether it's Hamilton and Les Mis. All stories, including even the one we're reading in Esther, follows the same pattern. And last week in chapter four, we looked at the high watermark of Esther's crisis that came to her. And now this morning, we're gonna try to tackle chapters five through eight in one message, and look at the confrontation and the consummation. Chapter four ends with Esther 
fasting and praying and asking all the Jewish people to fast and pray for three days before she goes into the king to publicly advocate for her her people. So chapter five begins in Esther chapter five, verse one. It so happened that on the third day, at the end of the praying and fasting, Esther put on her royal attire and stood in the inner court of the palace opposite the king's quarters. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the palace opposite the entrance. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she met with his approval. The king extended to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. The king said to her, what is on your mind, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even as much as half the kingdom will be given to you. Hey, I need you to hang on to that beginning phrase. It so happened. Folks, we are about to see a ton of happenings in the next four chapters. In fact, there is no way I can read through all four of the chapters this morning. So we're not gonna cover every verse. Instead, I'm gonna highlight a few verses out of each of the four chapters and then tell you the details of the story in between. Here's what I'm gonna ask of you. Fact check me. Fact check me by reading the story of Esther this week. By the way, do not read it if you're a fan of boring literature because this one is filled with action and adventure and the drama of relationship. And if you can handle that kind of story, jump in and track the events that we're gonna cover this morning. Esther, we clearly see here, comes before the king uninvited. And as the Bible Project has already told us, that's a risky proposition because it could be punishable by death if either the king is displeased with you or doesn't like the interruption. But instead here, we see that the king is pleased to see her and he greets her actually with a kind of common phrase of his day. That whole thing of I'll give you up to half the kingdom, it's a way of him saying, tell me what's on your mind and I'll I'll give you your request. So for Esther, the first major hurdle has been cleared. And yet there's more hurdles to come. Here's the way the story unfolds afterwards. Esther asked the king that both the king and Haman would come to a banquet right then and there that she has already prepared for him. Freeze. She has already planned and taken action even before she knows how this king will respond. Yes, indeed. We are talking about a woman of courageous faith. She's already put some action into motion The king and Haman agree. And at that banquet, the king asks again, ask me whatever you want and I'll do it. And this is Esther's moment. I mean, it feels like the, the ball is on the tee. All she has to do is take a swing at it and advocate for her people. And yet the rest of the chapter will tell us that instead, Esther's request of the king is this. Here's my request. Tomorrow, I want you and Haman to come back to another banquet that I will prepare. Why does she ask for a a, a delay? Why not just ask the king what's on her mind at this moment? 
Did she lose her nerve? Did she get in the moment and she just can't take the swing? She lets that pitch pass? Ah, it's too tense. I don't think so. The text doesn't tell us, but I don't think so. Because we've already seen in chapter four, verse 13, that Esther has courageously made her defining moment. I'm going to advocate, and if I perish, I perish. So the moment of courage has happened. Something else is going on here, and I believe Esther is launching a two-staged plan over a 24-hour period of time. And in this two-stage plan, she's wisely gauging the king's receptivity, and at the same time, she's cunningly setting Haman up to make sure he's in the room at the right moment. Decades ago, uh, there was a classic business book written called Getting to Yes. It was a book written on negotiation, on the art of negotiation. I think Esther's actually lifting a page out of this book. She's looking for common ground and building that first uh, before she comes in. Listen, at this point in Esther's life, just track her world. Five years ago, she was the victim of legalized Persian trafficking. But at this moment in the story, we are not reading a damsel in distress. We are reading a hero in the making. This woman is admirable. Esther has no idea that her two-stage, 24-hour plan is the very stuff that God is going to use in some very surprising ways. Before we jump back into the action of the story, let's at least peek into what's going on in Haman's mind. What is it like to be Haman right after this first private banquet with the king and the queen? Well, verse 9 tells us what's going on in his mind. Now Haman went forth that day pleased and very much encouraged. In other words, he liked being Haman that day. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and he did not rise nor tremble in his presence, Haman was filled with rage towards Mordecai. Folks, this man is so full of himself that he's toxically insecure. By the way, it was what happens when you're full of yourself. Hey, this man has it all. Power, prestige, influence, wealth. And one man failing to give him homage sends him into a tailspin. He arrives home to his house. I don't know long, how long his Persian commute was. But when he comes into his own home, he sees his wife is already throwing a party with his friends for him, probably because of the honor of having this private banquet with king and queen. And he walks in, and she probably greets him with, how was your day, honey? And he says, I've got a great family, I've got wealth, I've got prestige, I've got power, I've got influence, I've got status, but I do not have this one man Mordecai's respect. And I can't deal with it. And his wife has an idea. And in verse 14, she puts her idea on the table. Haman's wife, Zeresh, and all her friends said to him, have a gallows 75 feet high built, and in the morning, tell the king that Mordecai should be hanged on it. Then go with the king to the banquet contented. It seemed like a good idea to Haman, so he had the gallows built. 
We are now looking at Mordecai's supposed last 24 hours of life. And yet the next chapter, verse 1, the next verse, tells us what happens. Throughout that night, the king was unable to sleep, so he asked for the book containing the historical records to be brought. As the records were being read in the king's presence, what's that about? This is the ancient uh, version of melatonin, okay? It's like running down to the city office and pulling out the minutes from the Bentonville City Council meeting at 3 a.m. and saying, read it to me. Boom, you're out in moments. Verse 2. It was found written that Mordecai had disclosed that Bictana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, had plotted to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Interesting. The king asked what great honor was bestowed on Mordecai because of this. The king's attendants who served him responded, not a thing was done for him. Hmm. See all the happenings happening? The king just happened to have insomnia on the very night that Mordecai was planned to be hanged. The very one night in between the two staged banquet that Esther had planned. The king just happened to ask for the court records to be read to him. Uh, the servant just happened to go and in all those scrolls, pull the scroll that had Mordecai's thwarting of an assassination plot. The king happened to ask, What's, what did we do for Mordecai to reward him for this? And the servant says, we didn't do anything. As the king's pondering what should happen to reward Mordecai, at that moment, Haman chooses to report for duty and shows up to the king's chambers. And so the king says to Haman, what should be done for the man that the king wants to honor? Now remember, Haman is full of who? Himself. Who do you think the man that, he, that he's thinking of is? Himself. And he's like, I'll tell you what you should do, king. You should put your robe on him. You should put your crown on his head. Then you should take your horse, you ride, and put him on your horse. Then you should take your most noble prince and have him led through the city so that everybody could shout the greatness of that man. And the king says, brilliant. That's exactly why I have you as my best counselor. Do exactly what you said for Mordecai. And because you're my most noble prince, you'll do the leading and the shouting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Verse 11 of chapter 6. The king, let's drop to 11. So Haman took the clothing and the horse, and he clothed Mordecai. He led him about on the horse throughout the plaza of the city, calling out before him, so shall it be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor. I don't think he was really shouting it like he should have been. Do you? Hey, in ancient literature, this whole story is known as a comedy. Comedy was a form of literature that came about the 400 BCs, about this time, Comedy for the ancient comedies weren't full of jokes. They were full of either irony or reversals. And we see plenty of reversals and irony here. And all of this reversal, all of this activity is happening because a young, courageous, wise woman 
launched a two-stage plan over a 24-hour period of time, and she had no idea how God was going to use that. God took those 24 hours, and it was the raw material for him to do something beautiful. Mordecai is now actually in a favored position with the king before Esther puts her very bold request in front of the king. Chapter seven opens with the king and Haman back at the second banquet, and the king once again says to Esther, what's on your mind, honey? And I'll do it up to half the kingdom. Chapter seven, verse three is where we pick up. Queen Esther replied, if I have met with your approval, O king, and if the king is so inclined, grant me my life as my request and my people as my petition. For we have been sold, both I and my people, to destruction and to slaughter and to annihilation. If we had simply been sold as male and female slaves, I would have remained silent for such distress would not have been sufficient for troubling the king. And the king responded to Queen Esther, who is this individual? Where is this person to be found who is presumptuous enough to act in this way? Who is he? Where is he? Esther's answer, right here. Verse six. The oppressor and enemy is this evil Haman. Hmm. Esther now has put all of her cards on the table. She names Haman in front of Haman, and she asks the king to do something about it, not knowing what the king will do. And the truth is, this has put the king in a pickle politically. Because on one hand, he could take the easy way out and keep the political status quo going. Meaning he could just let the public policy play out like it's been written. Or he could do the hard thing and do a total reversal on his public policy. He's not totally sure what to do. So he excuses himself from the banquet. He walks privately to another room. And while the king is gone, Haman rushes to Esther, drops at his knees, grabs onto her, and begins to beg and plead for his life. The king walks back into the banquet room at that very moment, sees Haman with his hands on his queen, and he assumes that he is assaulting her. So Haman is drug out and hung on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai the night before. This is not a funny story, is it? But the ancient comedy is filled with reversal. And it just keeps growing. Chapter 8, the next verse. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that same day, King Ahasuerus gave the estate of Haman, that adversary of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Now Mordecai had come before the king, for Esther had revealed how he was related to her. The king then removed his signet ring, the very one he had taken back from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther designated Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's estate. We continue in verse three. Then Esther again spoke with the king, falling at his feet. 
she wept and begged him for mercy. She said, if, if the king is so inclined and if I've met with his approval and if the matter is agreeable to the king and if I'm attractive or we would say please to him. Let an edict be written rescinding those recorded intentions of Haman. For how can I watch the calamity that will befall my people? How can I watch the destruction of my relatives, meaning all of my kinsmen? Can you hear the pain in her voice? She is desperate and she is pleading. And yet, her request is not so easy for the king to do. Because in his day, a king's edict was irrevocable law. No king ever said the phrase, never mind, in their life. What was said is what was done. So the king looks at Mordecai and Esther. He takes off his signet ring, the one that he could make a new edict with, he gives it to Mordecai and Esther, and he said, essentially, you two need to figure this out. Oh, by the way, the woman who five years earlier was a victim is now the ruler of Persia. Mordecai takes that and has an idea. We can't revoke the old edict, so let's put in place a new edict. And this new edict will allow the Jews to begin to arm themselves over this year. Because remember, Haman's plan was a year later. They're gonna arm themselves and they can defend themselves to anyone who attacks them. So the edict is made, written, copies of it copied, and it's sent out to all 127 of the Persian provinces. The Jews have one year to prepare for their own battle. And it causes them to rejoice. In chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, we read, For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province, in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and with celebrating. If you love redemption stories filled with action, you love Esther. What a story. And the reversals are absolutely anonymous. Just track what we have seen. In chapter five, it began with the Jews fasting and in fear. But in chapter eight, it ends with the Jews feasting and rejoicing. In chapter five, it ends with Mordecai, hours from being hung, in chapter eight, it ends with Mordecai honored among all and the new prime minister. In chapter five, it begins with Esther trembling before a king. But in chapter eight, it ends with Esther empowered by the king to do whatever she wishes. Folks, the only thing bigger than these reversals is the unnamed character who caused the script to be flipped. Something was happening between chapters five and chapter eight. Actually, I misspoke. Someone was happening between chapters five and chapter eight. See, the, the book of Esther is filled with an ancient literary device known as couplets. Couplets is a way of telling a story in twos. 
And so we see two sets of actions and two sets of characters. We have two queens, right? Vashti and Esther. We have two prime ministers, Haman and Mordecai. And we have two kings, Xerxes and, wait a minute, the author seems to have left out the other one. One king is named, but this other one is unnamed. One king is seen, but this other one is unseen. One king is human, but the other one is divine. One king is Xerxes, the other one, Yahweh, faithful to keep his covenant. Sometimes the Jews called him Adonai, Lord over all. Sometimes the Jews called him Elohim, the creator almighty. See, the king who is ruling in this story is the Lord God Almighty. And that means he is sovereign. He is working to control all of the events we find in this story. Every event, every decision, every coincidence, every plan. Raw material in his hand to work about his good, his pleasure, his glory, and our joy all at the same time. What happened between chapter five and chapter eight? Sovereignty happened. God is sovereign over the circumstances leading up to the event, over the event itself, and even over the redemption that happens all the way in the process. I mean, the sovereign circumstances are mind-blowing. Xerxes happened to be in the right place in the right time, in the right mood when Esther first came to him. In chapter six, we see that a party just happened to be going when Haman got home in a bad mood and his wife concocts a scheme. The king that night happens to have insomnia and request the records be brought. And the servant just happened to pull the scroll of Mordecai's deeds. The king happens to ask about Mordecai's rewards. Haman happens to come in. At that very moment, the king is deciding the reward. Who is over all of these happenstances? Your Lord God Almighty, the faithful one we sung about all through worship this morning. He is sovereign over every detail and using all the affairs of life to accomplish a plan. And God will sovereignly right all wrongs. When wrong is righted, we call that justice. That's the biblical word justice. God is sovereignly using the story to bring about his good plan in his people's lives. When God takes all circumstances, including bad store circumstances, and brings a good plan out of it, the word we use is called redemption. God is sovereign over the circumstances, the justice, and the redemption. Don't you see everything leading up to the event, the event itself, and the aftermath, all tools in his hand? Esther's story is not just the story of courageous young Esther. If that's the message we leave, we have missed the story. It is the story of a sovereign God who will never break a promise to his people. And it's the story of our lives too. Because God's sovereignty over all creation is constantly working. And when you hear the word God is sovereign, do not think of it in this detached 
omnipotent, all-powerful creator who just steps back and is in charge of everything in a detached way, almost the way the Muslim God Allah is. That is not our God. Sovereignty for him means he's engaged in all of the details, leaning in and making things work out for his glory and our good all at the same time. Yeah, in his grace and goodness, God chooses to sovereignly work through his people. In fact, one Old Testament commentator said it this way. Our sovereign God will accomplish all his objectives with or without us. He calls us not out of his need for us, but our need to find fulfillment in serving him. Meaning God is so sovereign, he will accomplish his will, but his will is to use us in the process. So what does God's sovereignty look like on the ground in real life when you hit the ground running in the morning? Sovereignty means that God is able to do all that he is willing to do. God will accomplish his will. Meaning you have a God who is both willing and able to work on your behalf. He's willing because he's good. He's able because he's strong. And when you put strong and good together, you have a God you can trust. Jesus is able to do all he is willing to do, which means our call is simply to trust him. To trust him even when we cannot see or we cannot understand what he's up to. We trust him. Men and women, God is working in your circumstances. In the highs and the lows. In fact, when I look at scripture, I find that the lows, well, he's especially good with that tool. He is working in your circumstances. He will right all wrongs. The end of the story is not finished yet. And in the meantime, while we wait for him to right all wrongs, he is redeeming, working his good plan in and through our lives. He is good. Trust him. He is sovereign. Trust him. And oh God, by faith we say yes. We trust you in your work. We trust you with gratitude because you're sovereign. You are willing and able. Even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. You turn it for our good, for your glory. Even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for our good. You're working for our good. us in the 
continue to worship. We sing Christ is our firm foundation. Christ is my firm foundation. The rock on which I stand when everything around me is shaking. I've never been more glad that I put my He's never let me down. He's faithful through generation. So why would he fail now? He won't. He won't. I've still got joy in chaos. I've got peace that makes no sense So I won't be going under I'm not held by my own strength Cause I built my life on Jesus He's never let me down He's faithful in every season So Yeah. 
week we ask, empower us to walk by faith. And it's in your name, your people say, amen. Hey, can I ask you to just stand for 90 seconds tops, maybe 75 seconds. Uh, One of the things Stephanie said as we first started the service, she said, I wasn't able to come for three weeks because of illness and oh, how I missed it because something special happens when we gather together. Have you not experienced that as well? I have. I love the fact that I never walk a day in this city 
without Jesus being with me. But I love the fact even more that I can come together with you who do the same. And so for us to make those special times of gathering more special, could I ask that we pay attention maybe to uh, our coming and our going a little bit? And here's what I mean by that, in our coming. Uh, if you could come maybe 10 minutes earlier than when you're leaving the house, that would be huge, especially those of you who've checked in kids and you know what it's like to check them in right at 8.45 or right at 10.30, and that line is kind of backed up there. By the way, no judgment here if that's you. Some of you are more like 10.30-ish-ish. No judgment. When Lisa and I had a gaggle full of little kids in the house, it was a major victory when we got to church on time. And I actually called it a minor miracle if we got to church on time and had no fights. So uh, we understand the tension. We get it. But that 10 minutes leaving early will allow us just to thin out both the line of traffic coming in and the lines behind the check-in area, particularly for our new people who are arriving here right on time. And the second meme is as we go. Uh, we want you to know we understand what the parking lot is like when you leave. We get it. We watch you. Some of you smile. Some of you less so. We have done everything we can. Our team has been creative at tweaking and changing. We even hired a professional traffic study uh, to be done, and their conclusion was your team is doing everything that they can be doing. Unless somebody flies by helicopter, it is what it is given the little chip and seal road we're built on. However, that being said, it will take 20 minutes to get off the lot. We know that. So maybe in your going, you use that time to maybe linger a bit in the foyer, greet one another, let things kind of thin at a smaller pace. Or if you're stuck in traffic for 20 minutes, use the 20 minutes. It's worth it. Listen, I would spend more than 20 minutes to go get something I love. Like if Seven Brews was having free lattes this afternoon, 28 minutes tops, I would be in that line for a free coffee. And this is way, way better. So use the 20 minutes to have a conversation. If you have kids, you are tired of hearing you say, we never have time for a good conversation. Yes, you do. You're welcome. <laughs> Every Sunday, 20 minutes gifted. They can't leave. If they're littles, they're buckled in their car seats. You begin to unpack what you've heard and enjoy the process. This is worth it, isn't it? God bless you, fellowship. Our prayer team, Tim and Donna, are right here in front of uh, the, the uh, baptism. If we can pray for you, it would be our joy. We love you want to connect with you at the booth outside across the foyer, and uh, we look forward to next week.